You're listening to the VVMA podcast. Alrighty, so this week's guest is a financial advisor with her doctorate of veterinary medicine degree, Darby Affelt. Darby is not a currently practicing veterinarian, so the focus of our talk is going to be predominantly on her personal journey to becoming a veterinarian, what she's, do, what she's done since earning her DVM and how she's got to where she is now. Of course, we'll want to hear her perspective on finances as they pertain to some of the financial struggles veterinarians face, but please remember that just as a veterinarian can't diagnose or treat a patient without a thorough history, physical exam, and often multiple diagnostic tests, neither can a financial advisor give personal financial advice or create a personal financial plan via podcasts. So with that caveat, I'll get on with the introduction. Darby Affelt DVM is a financial advisor for clients in multiple states. Affelt works with veterinarians in all career stages with small to mid-sized practice owners and with individuals seeking retirement and estate planning guidance. As a formerly practicing doctor of veterinary medicine herself, as well as being married to another DVM who owns a large mixed animal practice, Affelt understands the industry, its complexities, and the needs of her clients. As a lifelong entrepreneur, she is deeply passionate about helping others succeed. Darby is originally from Colorado and received both her bachelor's and doctorate's degrees from Colorado State University. Following her move to Seattle, Darby built both a relief veterinary career and founded and operated a successful construction and development company, building over 100 new homes in one veterinary hospital. Her inspiration to become a financial advisor stems from her own experiences, and she draws upon those experiences to comprehensively integrate management, saving, investing, college funding, insurance, and long-term retirement financial plans for clients. FL's articles are regularly featured in Veterinarian's Money Digest, Veterinary Team Brief, Pulse, and WSVMA. She also co-authored a book entitled Real Life Financial Planning for Veterinarians. In 2017, Darby was honored recipient of the WSVMA Allied Industry Partner Award for her contributions to the veterinary industry. She teaches at WSU and UGA CVMs and speaks routinely at symposiums. Outside of work, Affelt resides in both Seattle and Olympia, Washington. She enjoys cycling, swimming, snow and water skiing, diving, traveling, studying, and spending time with her husband, also DVM, who recently sold his eight doctor mixed animal practice and her teenage son. So with that, I will get to asking you some questions. So Dr. Affelt, when and why did you decide to become a veterinarian? Hi, Thomas. That was a great introduction and a lot uh, kind of verbose, wasn't it? <laughs> Thank you for that. I, I was really young when I decided to become a, a vet, I think three or four years old. My folks remind me that I dragged home injured squirrels and birds continually, <laughs> tried to patch them up with bandages. But I'll never forget the pivotal moment. I found my newt floating dead at the top of the fish tank when I brought it to the bathroom to inspect it closer. And I squeezed him in, his, in like a Heimlich maneuver and out popped one of the blue decorative tank pebbles. And I was like, <laughs> he came back to life. And I was like, oh, that's my sign. <laughs> I don't work on newts. I never did. But anyway, my commitment never strayed. And I was um, in such a hurry that I took extra courses to skip a couple of years of school, one in college and, and one in high school and hurry up and got through vet school. So not really sure what my rush was about, but here I am. Well, that's awesome. And what was your vision for yourself in the future as a veterinarian? I think originally I wanted to practice zoo medicine and then I recognized in school how much I loved surgery. So, but by the time I finished my fourth year, I was really ready to dive into practice. I didn't want to go into an internship and then residency. So, um, Ironically, though, despite kind of a, pa a passion and lifelong entrepreneurial spirit, I never had aspirations to own a practice. So I look back and wonder why. But anyway, it would have fit me perfectly. But I've stepped out and I do something to help practice owners and veterinarians from a different perspective. Yeah. And 
Could you just tell me a bit about your journey to and through veterinary school? Yeah. So despite my rush to get into vet school, I met someone in college and ended up moving to a ski resort in Montana to take a year off after finishing college um, just to hang out, work as a professional raft guide, ski and bike racer. Um, and I applied to, to CSU at that point. And once in vet school, like you know, many of us, I found it to be pretty grueling. Uh, and my outlet was to compete in bike racing and duathlons. So as a result, I spent my free time training and not really studying. So, and I never, ever had an interest in large animals. So this made it difficult for me to pass my boards. And there were various entrepreneurial ever endeavors throughout vet school, a greeting card line. I started a pizza sauce and a radiology device. I got a patent on, but so I guess I, I could say I was distracted during vet school. And that's reasonable. And what did you like and dislike about vet school? I really, really, really do love the study of veterinary medicine and working um, in the heart of um, where the best and brightest minds are. It's, it's still very incredible to me. Um, I still hold an immense amount of respect for those in academia, and, and it was really a privilege to study at Colorado State University. Conversely, vet school, at least back then, seemed to be really about memorizing the most insane amount of minutiae, which really was bothersome. And, and I think it's very different today. We have computers and I think the learning and the, the learning curve and what they teach now is so much better than it was when I went to school. But that was my biggest frustration is using up a lot of brain space to memorize things which could be referenced. Another challenge that existed then and perhaps even more today is the lack or inconsistency of the, in the rigorous curriculum for business and financial topics. I think in general, vets are focused on science and medicine and not necessarily business and financial topics, although that's changed particularly because of VBMA. But I recognize that it's really difficult to fit it all into a curriculum to navigate the challenges with respect to how to get the right amount of information to the students and understand which students want business or financial education and which don't and how to convey to the students that regardless of their future endeavors, that their financial lives are gonna play a humongous role in their happiness. Yeah, and I, I think you, you bring up a, a good point about the challenges in vet school. So with that, what do you think your biggest challenges in vet school were? I think just again, that, that really horrendous curriculum and schedule. Um, and we didn't, back then, we didn't have the option to track large or small animal. And I just really didn't want to study large animal medicine. I didn't feel like it was a good use of my time. I really wanted to practice small animal. And admittedly, I'm kind of afraid of large animals. <laughs> so I know that they can hurt me. Um, and I don't understand their personalities. It just seems whenever I ride a horse, they just buck me off or scrape me off their backs. Anyway, um, I think at the time, it's always hard to see things, but now I'm glad I had to study it all. I'm more knowledgeable in general. Definitely. And kind of switching into more of your financial aspect, how much student loan debt did you graduate with when you were all said and done? None. <laughs> I feel badly admitting this, but back in the early 90s, vet school just didn't cost as much as it does today. Um, it just has this hyperinflated tuition hike. Um, plus I used funds from a custom solar curtain business that I started in high school and a radiology device I co-invented and successes from some small investments that my parents made in a company which ended up um, very successful. So I've always been a saver and an earner. Um, and these are strategies that students um, today could sure utilize as well. That's awesome. I think that always brings up a good point that students can find ways to uh, pay, I guess, pay their dues, but pay off their loans quicker. And so after you graduated, you worked as a full-time small animal veterinarian initially? Yeah, you know, not for long, just about six months. My boss smoked and he would wander around the hospital with a cigarette dangling from his lips. Um, plus he would beat the animals in the back when they were biting or scratching, you know, the kind that are scared. So it was horrible. I hated that job. It wasn't really a great entry into the career. Um, meanwhile, I bought a fixer upper house in Seattle and 
that was back in the day where you could get them pretty inexpensively. And one day I was looking at it and I thought, oh my gosh, this is like, this is just like surgery, the framing and bones and electrical and nervous and digestive and plumbing and skin and drywall. I could fix this. So I read books and I went to Home Depot workshops and dated some guy at the tool rental store. So I, I taught myself how to fix and flip homes and long, long-term that really, really converted into a very, very successful building development career. And on the side, I was a relief vet. That's awesome. And so that transition that you went through um, from veterinary school to practice, could you characterize that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's daunting, right? It's, I, I found it to be scary at first. It's, it's amazing how we come out of vet school, having seen so many cases and rotations and learning from the best of the best only to realize that it feels like we know nothing. Um, but like anything, the more cases we see, the more experience we get, the seeds which were planted in school germinate, germinate it comes along. Uh, positive and collaborative mentorship is really key. I didn't really have that, but I'd sure encourage students to keep that as a primary focus as they search for associate positions. I couldn't agree more. And with that big challenge of feeling like you didn't know enough, what other major challenges did you face as a new veterinarian? Well, I, 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 it sounds like I grew up in the covered wagon era, but we didn't have technology back then. So the feeling of not knowing where to start when I had a complicated case was super daunting. Um, you know, which book to look in to get answers. And that was challenging. And I just, I don't, I don't know what it's like today, right? Accessing information. I imagine it's right at the fingertips now, but I just, I had the feeling of being the um, doctor and decision maker and the weight of all that still has to be there despite technology. The other thing that I found hard to navigate was clients' budgets or lack thereof. And we don't always get to do the diagnostics or the fancy treatments that vet school cases um, offer. And, and it just seems like once out in practice, there's no consistency or pathway to care in, at many practices and vets can, and they do actually begin to cut corners. Uh, sadly, I see it all the time. And finding a practice with an excellent culture can also be very challenging. So I think like any business, it's the owner who sets and works diligently to maintain a positive collaborative culture. My good friend and colleague, Dr. Rick DeBose at WSU, he's, he's a brilliant pioneer in the study of practice leadership and culture um, 20 plus years ago when he co-founded VLE or you know, the veterinary leadership experience. I really, really admire his work around how critical it is to build an astounding team and dedicated to a very deliberately defined mission statement and shared values. So it's not easy to find in our industry. Um, takes hard and consistent work to build that environment and it's not a one and done. Um, but I do think it's critical to the success of the practice and the happiness of the associates. It just yeah. comes down to, evaluating the culture of a practice and, and finding the right fit and waiting for your pitch, I think. Yeah. And kind of going off um, those things you can face, uh, like you had mentioned, poor practice culture, um, poor bosses. And with that, did the realities of practice match your original vision? No. No, not at all. But I think back in the 90s, I don't think the industry had really fully embraced how important it is to build a collaborative and communicative team, right? It wasn't about culture, it was about medicine back then. The industry really has come a long way. The tools are out there and the resources are there. So um, it's just a matter of whether or not owners are, are doing that. Definitely. And that, that change is something hard to notice as well. And so after how many years of full-time practice did you begin working as a relief vet? So um, after six months, that's when I transitioned to, the, to being a relief vet. Um, I only lasted at that first practice for six months. It was a pretty terrible job. Um, once I remodeled that first fixer upper home and sold it three months later for twice my salary, I figured I was onto something. <laughs> it was really fun. I quit that 
evil job and I bought my next fixer upper house and, and I started offering my services as a relief vet then and, and went from there. And what was your, what spurred you to, to start working as a relief veterinarian? It really fit my entrepreneurial um, personality. I could work with my, uh, um, on my homes, which eventually turned into becoming a GC and running my own construction crews. But um, I could, I could fit it into my own schedule and, and practice vet med when I wanted to. Um, for years, I worked at, at, at the animal shelter at Seattle, in Seattle doing spays and neuters. I just really liked that. I could just turn on the radio and do surgeries. I'm just a very, very fierce entrepreneur and I like to set my own schedule. It's not always the right fit for everyone, but it was for me. Yeah, and you had just mentioned that you kind of got into construction. Um, how did you end up in the construction industry? That, that when I bought that first fixer upper house and I really didn't have very much money to fix it, it was so shabby. And, you know, I had a friend that was a real estate agent and I was picking his brain and I was like, I don't have any money to pay um, for like subcontractors. I just had a little bit of money to work on, you know, buy little building materials at a time. And so it just evolved from there. I just taught myself how to do it. And I hit really, really big success. It was just good timing. Um, I really loved building homes. It was, it wasn't an easy road. Um, I was the first and only female builder in Seattle and very few subs took me seriously. Inspectors gave me a hard time and made my life hell. Real estate agents brought me the properties that none of the other builder their builder buddies wanted. So I had to really prove myself and face the realities. So I kind of scratched and scraped for years. And eventually my properties gained favor with buyers because they were better designed and I put better materials and um, I, I learned how to tile. <laughs> so I used to put custom tile on every single surface instead of the linoleum and um, sort of plastic that the laminate that the other builders were using. And so that's kind of set me apart. And anyway, I have a lot of crazy stories for another day. Um, and I, you know, in 1999, this was interesting. I saw my first episode of Survivor, that reality show. It was the, kind of the first one iteration. And I was like, ooh, that'd be so cool to do a TV show about a female builder. I could have like a pink hard hat and all that. Um, I don't know. I never pursued that. And now I see shows like that. <laughs> well, I got to say you, you'd probably make the cut and I do also have to say, it's very impressive that you were one of the first female builders. Cause that is a very difficult tree to climb. Um, so how long were you in that specific industry and were you also working relief the entire time as well? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I stayed in vet med. I kept my hand in that. I built about a hundred new homes from the ground up from 1998 to 2008. And I, I was practicing as a relief vet that same time frame. And then I met my husband in 08 and he needed a new practice, a new building. I shouldn't say practice. I should say real estate. And so I built that in 2009, 2010. And then, then I had to reinvent. So your time management is off the charts. I got to say that. And another transition that you made was becoming a financial advisor. What led you to do that? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a sad story. It's in the past. So thankfully it's not current, but pretty much personal financial tragedy um, turned into personal conviction. So I had 28 homes under construction halfway through and I had six different crews and six sites when the market crashed in 08. Um, so along the way, as I was gaining success, I built up a really, really high net worth. Um, and I, took, I got taken advantage of by several greedy and very unscrupulous financial advisors along the way, unfortunately. So pretty, pretty hard lessons. Um, I lost everything, everything I'd ever built up. I was on my knees and then I thought, you know, I could lay here as a victim of the crisis and nobody ever went to jail for what happened, but I thought maybe I could do something good from this. So 
I, I decided, you know, I was like, how could I merge my veterinary background with my business and financial knowledge and skill set and help my DVM colleagues financially? So I kind of just figured that out of my own story of loss, I could help people to avoid many of the financial mistakes that I personally had made and, and I could make a positive impact. Talk about seeing the, the positive in a, in a bad situation. I, uh, I commend you for that. And so during this tough, tough transition to becoming a financial advisor, what kind of education and training was required for you to get there? It really depends on how an advisor wants to practice. So I started actually on the insurance side, um, just self-study and passing the state insurance course to become licensed. That's not the hardest one. Um, but then it does take years to build up enough experience to really be good at it um, and confident, right? And gain people's trust. The, the financial industry is so much more complex than people realize just having a license sure doesn't make a great advisor. On the other hand, having licenses and designations, um, which is expertise in certain areas, also doesn't make a good or bad advisor. So, but eventually I felt kind of thwarted and I wanted to work more comprehensively, kind of like how I'd been trained in vet school, right? So I decided to work with investments and become a planner. So I took courses, spent hundreds of hours studying for my series 63, 65, seven, um, tough exams. Once they're passed, the advisor can work on the recurring um, continuing education requirements and stay registered. And, and another way of gaining experience is to get a designation. So maybe some of your listeners have heard of a CFP. Um, it's kind of the most common one, certified financial planner. Uh, there's so many other designations. Um, I would say that a, a designation could be analogous to becoming board certified in the veterinary industry. It's a choice that an, an advisor makes to work towards um, a, a level of expertise in a certain area. And why did you choose financial advising over practicing veterinary medicine? That's a good question. I, I, I just have always really loved business and financial topics. And again, due to my own financial success and then subsequent um, losses, I just felt a calling to help other DVMs in an area that they aren't, they don't always love or have passions in. Um, so I can make a positive impact on individuals and practices and on many lives, even generationally, which I figured could make larger impacts on the industry and collaterally clients and their animals. So um, just an area that really intrigued me. And I, I do believe that our financial lives and, and the contentment or discontent that people feel impacts their happiness and how they operate personally and professionally. And financial security is so important to everyone. And I just have always believed from the time I was young that I was really destined to make a very big impact somewhere. Um, and despite the rocky road that I've kind of traveled to get here and the everyday challenges I continue to face along with everyone else, I just, I'll, I'm gonna persevere and strive to make this impact in our industry broadly. Um, and I just thought it would be a unique combination to be a vet and a financial advisor. So the good news is, is my practice has really grown significantly and. Um, I did just hire another veterinarian. I found a unicorn <laughs> and she's joined my practice. She just passed all her exams and I'm mentoring her. Well, that's amazing to build out your team. And the group that you work with or for, what is your relationship to Northstar Resource Group? Are you an independent contractor or how does that work? Yeah, so advisors work in so many different ways. It's, um, but here's how we work. I'm an independent contractor. I'm not an employee uh, for Northstar Resource Group. And Securian Financial Services is as Northstar uh, Resource Group's broker dealer. So they're based in Minneapolis. They have origins tracing back to 08. It's an independent, and I'm in 19, well, 1908. <laughs> it's an independent firm 
meaning we don't have any proprietary products or requirements and the professionals at the firm offer a really wide variety. So we have, we're product neutral. Um, and I was with two other firms prior to Northstar and they weren't a good fit. So I moved my practice there. They have an entire medical division, which is wonderful. I love the support that they offer. And my practice is set up here in the Northwest, but I, it's national. So my, inter, my, my inner entrepreneur is really, really happy. Um, all this being said, the financial industry is deep, deeply regulated and it should be. So Northstar works very hard to keep up, keep all their advisors very compliant to make sure sound, we're making sound recommendations. Um, and we have a whole host of experts at home office, kind of like a whole panel of board certified experts in every different division. So I'm like a general GP with a whole bunch of um, board certified experts that I can pick up the phone and run things by. So it's, it's really a great setup. So this all sounds very intriguing. What advice would you offer a veterinarian who wanted to follow in your footsteps? Yeah, I think the number one most important thing to do for anybody is to start with the belief and conviction that with steadfast dedication and hard work, we can achieve our goals. Um, I do believe that's a choice. And when I started in the construction industry, I was told it couldn't be done as a female. Um, but I just was a scrapper and I made my way through it. And then when I got into the financial industry, despite starting off at two firms, which weren't a good fit, I just persevered and I found the right firm and it fits my core values. And, um, and I think that it's an important for an advisor to work with a mentor, someone who's been in the industry for many years and has seen many, many, many clients and cases, kind of just like the vet industry. And at the end of the day, I think grit really is the basic ingredient that anyone's going to need when embarking on the journey to any big goal. It's going to pay off with discipline and dedication, and there's going to be setbacks, but just push through those. I mean, I have days like everyone else where I want to fold up and give up, but we just push onward through those setbacks. And um, it sounds so cliche, but it's really the only way to reach the high bar. I couldn't agree more. And what are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen veterinarians or other doctors make regarding money management? And also, what are some of the most common misconceptions about money? Oh, Thomas, this is a great question. Uh, I'm going to use a vet metaphor here. In the, in the vet industry, I think it's not uncommon to run into folks who outside the industry who don't understand how vast and complex vet med is, right? And we sure couldn't succinctly convey or sum up how hard vet school is or what kinds of conditions we can treat or how we treat them in a sentence or two, right? Um, so where would we begin? When I decided to become a, an advisor, I was naive enough to make the same miscalculation about the financial industry. I was like, how hard can this be? I went to vet school. I was so wrong. Uh, the financial industry is deeply complex and vast. And just like that med, it takes years and years of study cases and experience to gain the wisdom and knowledge. To, to become a really good and comprehensive advisor it doesn't mean you can't be good right out of the gate, but it, it's like case building, right? Just like that's So we practice along the way, we gain a deeper knowledge, the further we go. I'm into this career now 12 years and every single day I learn something new, every day. We can't possibly be an expert at everything, um, nor can a DVM be boarded in every subject. So the biggest mistakes DVMs make is to trying to financially advise themselves. Um, you know, I know that in the veterinary industry, we struggle with Dr. Google um, and, and it's the same in this industry. Um, I can e easily recognize when someone's a DIYer and um, could you be successful? Of course, but what are the stakes, right? The stakes are high. So I just don't think that we'd do our own accounting or run our, run our own lawsuit if we were to be um, sued or suing somebody. So we sure wouldn't engineer our own building either. So I could go on, but I think a big mistake is that a lot of veterinarians try to run their own financial lives and 
tax laws change and economies change and products and strategies change and lives change and goals and what ifs complicate things. And then there's the life's zingers. So it's just fast and complex. So just hiring a professional really is probably the best advice I can get. Um, Google's full of info and just doesn't have a lot of wisdom. Definitely. Dr. Google can be treacherous. Mm -hmm. Thinking about the future and in general, what are some of your biggest concerns for the field of veterinary medicine in terms of money? Yeah, I kind of spend my days unwinding years of financial mistakes and missteps that DVMs have or have, you know, steps they haven't taken. People put things off, right? We bury our heads. Um, I'm an example of someone who didn't have good advice and I lost everything as a result of that. So I had all of my assets, everything I owned in one holding, which was my real estate holdings. Um, So I think that it just, it breaks my heart to learn about a disability or a premature death, which crushes a family financially when there could have been prevented or handled with proper risk management. My own husband's another great example. His first wife died tragically in a rock climbing accident and she didn't have enough life insurance in place. And he was left grieving and raising two little kids and trying to run his busy practice on his own. And then we were faced in 08 with building, rebuilding my 08 losses. I lost my whole entire net worth. Um, She was insurable and she could have left behind a legacy to help pay for college and allow him to grieve and not worry about money. So it's just terrible. And, and, I, and I, I also really breaks my heart when I have to tell someone that's well into their 60s that they can't retire until into their 70s because they haven't done planning soon enough. So I think that um, the, my biggest thing in this industry is I do have a pro bono side to my practice. I always have, I sit with new grads, anybody who would like me for an hour at the end of near vet school one-on-one and I map out a little starting financial plan for them. It costs nothing. And we look everything comprehensively and I make sure that they feel okay. Um, they're, you know, that they're, they're handled. They know what they're going to be doing with their debt. I help them map it all out, make sure they have, they understand all of their insurance options, not just the ones that have been placed in front of them. Um, so I just think that, you know, sitting through a few lectures in vet school, it's not enough. Um, so that's really my goal with the industry is to really turn things around and help people uh, more comprehensively and make sure that they're set up. And there's really bright news. Um, I have two schools, well, actually four now that have opened up their doors and bring me in at the end of each year. And now my team, so we can sit one-on-one with new grads and help them. Um, And we're expanding that program to other vet schools. So I'm so excited about that. Well, that's awesome. That's exciting news for uh, for you um, and the schools who will be getting that return. So I know this is, kind of getting into more of the morbid side, but you would know it firsthand better than anybody. Do you believe that money problems play a role in the high levels of depression and suicide reported in the field of veterinary medicine? Yeah, no question. No question. Um, DVMs need to know that if they're stressed out over stressed out over their financial lives, there's help out here. Um, this is, might come as a surprise to your listeners, but in all my years in this industry and my work with hundreds and hundreds of DVMs in all different career stages, it's actually not the student debt that's going to crush people financially. (laughs) Um, it's financial habits. So not everyone, of course, I know there's so many people who are really frugal and still struggle with debt. It's just that the majority of people don't have a financial road um, mapped out for themselves. And, and a lot of people, not just DVMs, of course, spend blindly and don't save. So this can lead to fear and angst. And um, it's, it's going to ruin a brilliant career and a life. The, I think the key is to just 
get help and follow the advice. And not unlike the advice that deviants themselves are dispensing to their clients, right? We can't ignore that debt is a major problem. And then it, it can be a really long and stressful road to get out of it. So I'm sure not minimizing it. I'm just saying there's, there's really good help and we can build a financial map and help clients become, um, develop good practice, um, good habits and manage it while enjoying life all along the way and practice. So I just, I hope that people hear the messaging that um, don't be alone with that, you know, sit down with a professional and if they don't understand student debt, keep seeking until you find one that does. I, I do know that a lot of people come to me and say, oh, I can't find a financial advisor who understands how to work around my debt. And to me, um, that's just a real shame because there's a, there's a way to do it. Yeah, help is out there. And I think that's an important concept for veterinarians and vet students um, need to know. And with that, what's your general impression of the level of financial literacy among veterinary students? Does it concern you that some people want to be a veterinarian so badly that they literally don't care how much it costs? Yeah, yeah. You know, the literacy really varies widely. Um, and, 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 it, and so because of those one-on-one -on -one meetings that I give, I have a little URL that people just click and then they share it around the United States. And so I, I talk to 150 to 200 new grads a year and from all over the US and it's always noticeable how the, the literacy varies. It depends on where they went to school, whether what kind of courses they're offered, what kind of um, sessions and lectures that the, this, the College of Vet Meds are bringing in. So I really do believe that it's the responsibility of the vet schools to make this part of their curriculum and not um, optional. And I do find that the, 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 the vet schools that require some of these practice management courses or you know whatever they're calling them now i do notice that the financial literacy among their graduates is so much better so i think they're aware and i think they need to bring in more coursework um this unfortunate part is a lot of students are don't want it they don't appreciate it they don't take it, advantage of it if it's an elective um, they complain that it's not per pertinent to them and this is just a tough endeavor for the schools, I get it. Um, but I firmly believe as an educator that we should really consider that the students, just from their very first year, help them understand their financial literacy, their debt, and some of their um, choices, even all the way through vet school, to either live a lifestyle or draw more loans so that they can, um, is, it can be mitigated by some financial literacy. Yeah, and I think that goes, that ties into the actual DVM degree. And do you think that getting your DVM is a good investment or how could one make the DVM degree be a good investment? Is, and is practice ownership the most sensible way out of student loan debt? Yeah, such a great conversation. Um, I do think that the veterinary degree is an incredible investment. I really, really do. And I have so much data. I have over 900 veterinary clients. And um, so many people are so, so, so successful. Um, not everybody is, but again, that kind of harkens back to kind of sitting down with an advisor and mapping things out because there's a way and so many people can be ridiculously successful these days. And this has really changed since 2020. Um, vets are busy. In fact, busy to the point of burnout, right? So I just talked to a client yesterday who's four years out of school and she's on track to make over $200,000 as an associate. 
So I don't necessarily think you do, and she doesn't work too many hours. Um, I don't think you necessarily do have to become a practice owner, although that's sure um, a great way to get out of debt. Um, I think you can really make it in this career as an associate as well. It's just a matter of finding the culture and the place that you like and that you're happy. I mean, we could go on for days about this, but the biggest, biggest concern I see is just not mapping out a financial strategy and um, going years and years and years. And, you know, isn't tomorrow a sum of yesterday's and all of a sudden we're kind of behind in our savings and we don't really have a lot to show for it. So I think the whole goal is to build out this strategy and this map and follow it and stay accountable to it and work with someone to help do that and very, very successful career. And another financial concern along with not only veterinarians and vet students in the field is the veterinary support staff and even licensed veterinary technicians are often not paid enough to be able to support themselves or their families without help from a spouse or even other family members. And I can't imagine how people in that position would be able to plan for a comfortable retirement. Do you think a financial planner could help a licensed veterinary technician making 15 an hour? Or could someone on even a licensed veterinary technician salary afford a financial planner? Yeah, you know, this is a tough subject and situation, right? Because um, in my opinion, I don't believe supports staff are paid enough. Um, just as um, at DVM associates are starting to be paid more, um, but the, the paraprofessionals and the staff really aren't. Uh, and because I work with so many practice owners across the U.S. and talk to so many, I think the large it's very, very tough to compete with the corporates now and the consolidators as an independent practice owner. They offer so much higher salaries and benefits and they run more efficiently. I think the number one key for our industry is gonna be able, is gonna be about helping practice owners run more profitably, run more efficiently, run their practices like the businesses that they are, and then as they get more efficient and profitable, they can start to pay their staff what they're really worth. And, and I think that's really gonna be the key for our industry. I've seen it. I've seen it before my very eyes, taking a practice from good to great. And it can be done and it takes work from the owner and the manager and um, commitment instead of just sort of doing what they've always done. And, and it means um, dedication, but, but it's possible. Right now on $15 an hour, I'm not really sure how somebody could afford an advisor. You know, I work for free with new grads, um, just kind of getting them situated, but I'm sure not free down the road. I don't, think, I don't think my fees are very expensive, but still I've got to be paid for what I do. So part of it is good habits and part of it's, you know, making good choices and discipline too, even at that income level. And I'm sure veterinarians and technicians and as well as myself get pretty confused about all the different types of financial help that may be available. There's terms like CPAs, CFPs, tax consultants, and financial planners, advisors, brokers, fiduciaries, and et cetera. We go on for forever. Could you please explain the difference between some of the most common types of financial expertise people might seek and under what circumstances each might be appropriate? Yeah, this is a pretty loaded question. So it would probably take me days to um, respond, but I'll kind of give you a good overview. Um, there is confusion out there and for a good reason, it's complex and there's little continuity with respect to what advisors call themselves. Um, Plus, I think the financial industry in general has done a poor job of helping the public understand what we do. Um, and then there's the bad seeds out there, you know, who get a lot of press and further confuse or um, put fear into the public. So there's a lot of different types of licenses out there. 
and um, what, you know, what one planner or advisor or agent can do. There's a ton of regulation. Um, you'd think it'd be as simple as like food labels, right? Where the ingredients are clearly outlined and the calories and such, but it's different. So an advisor and a planner could mean that they offer advice for a fee and they can build a formal financial plan or they can manage assets or they can do both. Some don't, some only manage assets and do not build financial plans at all. Um, and I, I, I meet all kinds of clients who have someone managing their assets, but don't have a formal planning relationship and they have no idea if they're on track and to meet their retirement goals because the assets are one part of a greater plan. So that's why it's really important to question your financial professional and ask what they do. Um, so an advisor that handles investments can charge in a couple different ways too. They could charge a commission when they place trades. It's called a brokerage account. Or they could charge a flat percent on the assets they manage. This is just talking about asset managers, um, usually on a declining basis, but not always. So based on the amount of assets. So this is called an advi investment advisory account. And I know that most investors have no idea <laughs> how, they're, how they're being charged. So it's really important to learn this and ask it um, and get a second set of eyes too. I wanna make a, a one really, really important distinction here because I think it's confusing. There's a big difference between an asset manager and a financial planner that I just mentioned. And sometimes both of these professionals are called financial advisors. So the asset manager manages assets. They may offer financial planning. And conversely, the financial planner or financial advisor, sometimes called, offers formal financial planning services and may or may not offer asset management. So the terminology isn't clear cut. Um, I once met a, a vet closing in on retirement and he had someone managing his IRA, but the advisor either didn't offer or didn't perform any planning services. So as it turned out, when we looked at his situation, I recognized he was not saving enough and he was not at all on track to reach his retirement goals. And he had no idea. His comment to me was, oh, I thought the other advisor was doing all that for me. It's not necessarily true. If they don't offer or don't do formal financial planning and they haven't considered everything, um, there could be a gap. So in this case, the only service the DVM was paying for um, that advisor was to manage assets. And he was definitely on track to run out of money in retirement. So anyway, planning and asset management are two really different services. So instead of worrying about terminology, I think it's more important because it's inconsistent and I don't think um, anyone will ever get it, you know, understand it all. Just ask, ask what your professional, what do they offer, right? And it's also, if you have an advisor or you think you do, or you have a planner, it's really, really important to always make sure um, they have thought of everything because sometimes they take their hand off the wheel. So just get a second set of eyes. As far as how I work, um, uh, I'm, uh, there's advice, well, there's advisors that are fee only where they may not help clients to purchase any products, say from an insurance carrier, um, but they'll still recommend someone go somewhere to get that. That's a fee only advisor. I work as a fee based advisor. So I do all of the above. I build plans. My practice is very plan driven. I believe in the financial plan. Um, I can manage assets. And I do offer uh, product neutrally some insurances to support that plan. And some people think there's a conflict of interest, right? Um, in someone who does all that. And if, a, if a, but I believe that if an advisor is acting in the client's best interest, um, this can be fine. I'm just gonna make a veterinary analogy. Take a DVM on production that sees a large breed dog with dermatitis. So the vet could recommend only convenient to the client, like let's say we have a great name, <laughs> since they get paid a whole lot more commission, or they could educate the client on all the options. They could say, hey, um, if the dog would eat Cephalex and like a dog treat, this is going to cost you $22 as an example versus this giant expensive shot of convenient, which is convenient. 
Um, but I think the, the whole goal is to offer options and that's really fiduciary. I'm talking about being a fiduciary. And that really is a, a choice that an advisor makes. And it's, I believe it's very vitally important. It means that the advisor puts him or herself under additional regulatory scrutiny um, to make sure to prove to their clients that they're uh, putting their, the clients first in front of them always. Not all advisors are fiduciaries. So it's important to ask if, if your advisor is. Yeah, I think you made some good points there in terms of what you need to, to look for. Um, and the verbiage can be confusing, but I think a good thing to kind of talk about for a quick second is some of the red flags to look out for when seeking financial advice. Could you weigh in on that at all? Yeah. Yeah, I think that I, I would recommend shying away from anybody who's making unrealistic promises, right? Like, oh, I always get this rate of return on investments. That's silly. Nobody can predict the future. Um, and we all know that past performance doesn't predict future results. Even Warren Buffett says this. So um, that's a red flag. An advisor who's not engaged and doesn't appear as if they truly care is a caution, right? Maybe they're just looking at someone as a paycheck versus that they really, really care and they're there to help. So a lack of transparency about fee structure is a concern or a red flag. Mm -hmm. If an advisor, I met someone just last week who is paying their advisor an annual um, investment fee, but hasn't heard from them in years. That's, that's not actually okay in our industry. The regulators would be all over that. So, you know, if you haven't heard from your advisor and you're actually paying them, um, that's a red flag. Uh, and I think, um, it, you just really, I think as a, as a consumer, you need to understand if you're paying for fee-based services or fee-only services and really get clear with your advisor about what it is that you're paying. You know, I sometimes will help someone start a very small investment account. It's a brokerage account. It's not the level of service where, you know, we're on the phone two, three times a year doing um, a review of a $5,000 account. That's just a different level of service. So you just really have to be clear and, 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 and share communication with your advisor to understand what it is that they're doing for you and what you're paying for. Definitely. I think those are some, some good things to look out for that I didn't even know about. And if a veterinarian were to hire you as their financial advisor, what should that veterinarian expect in terms of the process of collaborating to develop a financial plan? Yeah, that's a great question. My, my financial planning process is very comprehensive. So I, I first just spend time with people really understanding if they're ready for a formal financial plan. Some people aren't. Sometimes they just sort of need a little bit of advice or something transactional. So for example, they just got married there's not a lot of cash flow yet early in their career. They might just need a small term life insurance policy, for example. Um, other times they're really ready. So, so what I do is I sit down with them, just get to know them. Who are you? What's important to you? What are you trying to achieve? What are you looking for? Do you have, what's your time horizon? Do you have any fears or concerns or, um, you know, have you had a relationship with an advisor in the past? Good, bad, neutral? things like that. I just really want to understand who they are as a person. And then we just sit down and look over where they are. Where are things? Do you have debt? How much is it? Where's your cash flow? What's your income? What's your outflow? How much are you saving for retirement? Where are your savings? You know, all that. We look over insurances. We look at their tax planning. We look at, I'm not an accountant, but we look over, there's all kinds of things an advisor's doing to do some tax planning. Um, we just, want to understand the data. I don't know. It's kind of like that med. <laughs> it's kind of like doing an exam and getting a, a really good solid health history and then doing diagnostics. I'm not calling my clients dogs are sick, but I use that analogy a lot. So then when I have all those fact patterns line up and we really do need a plan, that's where I just really start to integrate it. All, all advisors use some sort of software. Um, we put it in. And then we make sure what they're on track to do now and we can build alternate scenarios or what if scenarios like, hey, could I retire at 60 or 
Um, what if I wanted to buy a cabin or should we downsize or upsize? Or what if I have a family? So we start to map out um, what it would look like if we did this or this so they could see the impact of their decisions. I can see if they're spending too much, if they are and they're not on track, we could say, hey, you know, if you just saved X amount more per month, um, you're good to go or maybe spend a lot less a month. On the other hand, I have had clients that are way, way, way overfunded for retirement because they've just been so great at saving all their lives um, and they can retire when they want and they can take care of grandchildren and do some gifting or do some traveling. So that's really the process of a plan. And we have a multiple meetings a year and we deliver the plan and sometimes they need help implementing it, putting some pieces into place. And we just stay, stay engaged. Well, I think that's, I think that's good. Staying engaged is uh, <laughs> definitely, a, definitely a plus. Um, and would that veterinarian be able to call you for random financial advice, let's say about the wording in an employment contract about ProSal? Oh yeah. Yeah. Once I build a plan and we're engaged, um, they can reach out during the year and life changes, right? Goals change, life changes. Um, dreams change, marriages change, <laughs> families. Um, I'm, not an, I'm not an attorney, so I probably couldn't give them advice on wording on an employment contract, for example, but I can sure tell them what I see out there. Um, and then if we need to pull in a, a licensed attorney, we can sure do that. I work really, really hard to pull in very excellent referrals from the industry. So I've spent years combing the industry and finding amazing support paraprofessionals that are supportive, right? Like attorneys or CPAs or brokers or lenders, um, lots of different people out there that are so good at what they do. And I just believe in sort of a collaborative team helping a client so they can stay focused on their own passions. And is there any specific advice you'd like to offer future veterinarians based on your own personal experiences? Yeah, I think I would just beg people to get an advisor earlier than what they think they need one, right? I, I hear a lot of people say, oh, I have to get ready to go see the veterinarian. In, in some ways, that's so silly. Or I mean, I, I said vet, didn't I? I meant advisor. That's like saying, I, I have to wait for my dog to have something go wrong to go see the veterinarian. Right? <laughs> There's no wellness program in that. So I just think that you know, if you build a relationship with an advisor early in your career and you build that trust, um, financial lives get more and more and more complex. They just do. And so I would just say for a, a young vet, build that relationship and, um, and then stay engaged with them, with that advisor, get professional advice so that you can go and be an expert at what you're an expert at, which is vet med. Yeah. And I, appreciate all of this advice. Um, it's very helpful. And just so people who are listening know, how can listeners find out more about you or get in touch with you? Yeah, if you want to get in touch with me, I'd be, I'd love to reach out and say hi. Um, so my website is darbyaffelt.com, D-A-R-B-Y-A-F like Frank, F like Frank, E-L, D like David, T like tango.com. <laughs> and they could go to the North Star Resource Group website, find me that way. You can find me on LinkedIn. My email is my first name, dot last name at northstarfinancial.com. And um, just I'm out here, just reach out, can have a conversation, see how we can help guide you and how we can be helpful. Of course. Perfect. Thank you for that. And do you have um, any sort of favorite charity or anything of the sorts you'd like to mention that listeners can consider making a donation to if they'd like to um, for you donating your time and advice? Mm, that's such a thoughtful question. Uh, uh, yeah, I do. There's a, there's a little, um, I started a little spay and neuter service for this uh, Lewis County Animal Shelter down in Centralia, Washington. They don't have a lot of money and um, a lot of animals are coming through there. And uh, 
when I, when I met them, they were euthanizing 1,100 cats a year. So we got that number down significantly. So I like that little shelter. So it's Lewis County Animal Shelter. They can always use donations. That'd be great. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. And hopefully you will have students and also hopefully veterinarians reaching out to you soon. Thank you, Thomas. I really appreciate you having me. This is a passion of mine. And um, I think it's great that you're getting this information out there. Thank you for having me. Of course. Enjoy the rest of your day.